0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scripture. Join me once again, if you would, in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, we are doing our review. We have uh, completed all four chapters, and so we are presently doing our review running back over the old slideshows, running back over the old highlights uh, from what we had took, taken much more time to teach through uh, comprehensively the first time through using a couple of weeks three weeks, four weeks maybe, to try to summarize a two-year study. This was something that began more than two years ago. And uh, one of the great dangers in our format is uh, of teaching is that we can be so focused on particular details and really be drilling down into, into the exegesis of different passages that by the time we finish a book study, for example, two years later, we think, now what was chapter one about? We, we actually lose the forest through the trees and so we don't want to do that before we move on to the book of Colossians which will be our next book study I do want to take the time to review so we did so a week ago uh, on Sunday and again on Wednesday uh, we'll do so again here this morning and, and we'll see maybe two or three more weeks worth uh, to go through particularly chapters 1, 2, and 3 the ones that were the, the furthest in the past uh, from I think chapter 4 maybe will be still fresh in our thinking from uh, not being that long ago. All right, before we do begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's faithfulness to lead our study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in the blessings that we have to assemble together, rejoicing in the resurrection of our Savior, and uh, we celebrate that here today and appreciate the blessings that we have to uh, to walk in the newness of life as uh, your son was was uh, raised from the dead uh, father we too might now walk in newness of life and these are tremendous blessings that we have blessings uh, to the church age father that baptize us into union with your son i pray that on this day we would uh, be humble before you as we study to show ourselves approved open our eyes to these powerful lessons We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so uh, working through our slideshow here, I think um, you may get tired of seeing this, but this is the outline for chapter one. We start with a salutation in verses one and two, and then we divide the remainder of the chapter into these three parts. And each of these three parts really comes with its own uh, marvelous scripture memory verse related to uh, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's what we were looking at last Wednesday night, reviewing uh, the material that we had gone through back in the day when we were dealing with this section, that uh, when you got saved, that was just step one. When you got saved, that was called the beginning of a good work. The beginning is not the conclusion. The beginning is not the point. The beginning starts the process whereby God uh, perfects each one of us. And it's a marvelous thing to go through the idea of perfection in the Christian walk. I'm going to move on this morning to focus on the second section of the, of the chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and this centers on, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And this is a marvelous truth. This is the Romans eight twenty eight truth of all things working together for good. This is the recognition, as we'll see this morning, that uh, circumstances may not be pleasant, but the circumstances can produce something greater than what you would have produced Without those circumstances, and so when you look at it with divine viewpoint, you thank God that He's bringing you through those circumstances, and recognize that He knows better than we do about what it is that we have to go through. So we'll we'll, uh, outline that for you here today, and then uh, Wednesday night we'll uh, wrap up the chapter, uh, reviewing uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain the content that we studied out of uh, verses nineteen through thirty. So in looking at circumstances here in verses 12 through 18, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And we see that this is an informative message that Paul wants his readers to understand. He wants the people praying for him to understand and and to have a, a more effective prayer life engaging with him in these struggles. I want you to know And uh, we, first of all, right off off the bat, we can recognize that the blessings of ministry are communal. The blessings of ministry involve the whole body of Christ. Multiple people are invited to get on board, to join in uh, through prayer, through giving, through other uh, uh, collaborative ministries to join in what's going on. In other words, we're more involved with people than maybe sometimes we give it credit for. That uh, in some cases, I think folks have taken things like Uh, the doctrine of privacy. They've taken other concepts and they've really pushed people away and said, I don't want you involved. This is between me and the Lord. Well, wait a minute. We're all one body in Christ and we love one another. We're commanded to bear one another's burdens. How do I bear your burdens if you refuse to tell me what those are? Or if we're not involved together, if we're not intimate as a local church to share those things with one another whereby we can uh, lift these things up. So I think these things become important and uh, when Paul says, I want you to know, he's, uh, he's causing them to know. This is really the occasion for writing section of the book. There there tends to be one in every epistle. Uh, a lot of letters are the same. You, you have a salutation where you greet the people you're writing to. Uh, you may then have a thanksgiving section. Paul had a thanksgiving section. But then there's also an occasion for writing section. Essentially, in any letter that gets written, not just books of the Bible, but any letter that gets written, Pretty early in that letter, you, you let the person know why you're writing. <laughs> you know, Here's why I'm writing, You know, uh, and you, you spell it out. So it's the occasion for writing section, and you can track that in any of Paul's correspondence. In this case, it is his personal testimony to Romans 8.28. It is his personal illustration that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his promise. And uh, so he says, his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Meaning the progress would have been less had he not gone to jail the way that he'd gone to jail, had he not been imprisoned uh, as described in the prison epistles. His circumstances are the things with respect to him, the me things. Remember that? The me things, the things that are kata emi, according to me, the according to me things. And it's it's a really it's a nice idiom it's a nice expression it, it it maybe it's prettier in the Greek than the English I don't know but but the according to me things that's that's how the New Testament describes circumstances right and so we should maybe find great comfort in that that my circumstances those are just the according to me things and the according to me things aren't really the issue. The circumstances aren't the point. The circumstances are simply the testing venue. They're simply the the occasions for which God chooses to glorify his son, to to accomplish his plan. And and really, I don't want to say they're irrelevant because they could have been other circumstances, but they're the circumstances that God chose. So rejoice in them. Be happy for them. And uh, that's what we're learning to do in this book anyway, is to rejoice always, to rejoice in every circumstance. Because God selected that circumstance for His good pleasure, and we can uh, we can t- take comfort in that. So the circumstances are the things with respect to Him, the according to me things. All right? And when He talks about progress, remember this is by God's definition of progress, not our definition of progress. And there's a lot of... Uh, of course, we can have a little joke about progressives, the political progressives in our country and so forth, and uh, not to get political this morning, but it's just fun to, to, to poke fun at things. But God is really the true designer of the progressive movement, that He, God is the one that's progressing, and He's progressing from Alpha to Omega. That's what I mean by that, that God's got a plan to glorify Jesus Christ eternally to the maximum and to take Jesus to that Omega moment. That's the plan of the Father. And it's not about us, we're part of that plan, but the plan is about His Son, to get His Son to that omega moment of maximum glorification between Alpha and Omega in the outworking of of time. And so let's recognize that it's progress as God counts progress. And sometimes we just have to walk by faith and trust that He's making that progress happen. We may not see it ourselves. Or we're probably in the worst uh, position to watch ourselves grow up because we're too subjective and we're right here. It's like watching your children grow up Well, they live with you every day. You don't really see them grow unless like your cousins or your extended family that you see every year or two years when it's been a while since you've seen them and you go, wow, you've really grown up because it's been a while since you've seen them. And so the difference becomes much more noticeable. Uh, When it's too uh, close at hand or it's too subjective, you don't always see the growth for what it is. You don't always see the progress for what it is. Also recognizing, of course, that we are creatures of time and we are finite creatures and and God's operating on an eternal scale. And so a lot of times we have to take it that by faith as well and trust that the progress will be observed in eternity even if we don't see the progress observed now. You realize much of the testing you're going through right now the application is going, to be, is going to come 30 years from now when your kids grow up and remember, wow, I remember when mom and dad went through that. This is what he was teaching us. This is what we were supposed to see. They went through that so that I could see that so that now I could bear fruit today on a scale of things that only God, of course, could plan for and engineer and bring about and, uh, and accomplish. It's a marvelous thing. Then we have this rather more adverb, they have turned out for the greater gospel. Uh, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Rather more. It is a marvelous adverb here, and it's surprising. It actually expresses surprise that my circumstances have even squeeze in there. If you want, uh in your? Do you write in your Bibles? Just squeeze in there a little. Wouldn't you know it? Or actually, they have actually turned out. There's a note of surprise in the idiom that describes they have actually turned out in a, in a surprising opposite outcome to what human viewpoint might expect. You might expect that when Paul goes to jail, ministry slows down or ministry shuts down or just things are on hold. Uh, Timothy and the rest of the crew will just say, well, let's just kind of hang out until Paul gets free and then we'll, we'll resume ministry again. That's not how it worked. There was greater progress with, uh, with Paul in jail. And so some of these concepts come clear. Uh, Let's look at some of these. Genesis 50. It should be well known to you. Genesis 50. This is the Old Testament, Romans 8.28. Because Joseph's brothers had uh, beaten him and thrown him down a well and then dragged him out of the well and then sold him off into slavery. That was a terrible set of circumstances. And yet, what did God do with it? And you might expect when the brothers found out that he was still alive and that he could kill them if he wanted to, right, that he controlled Egypt, that he controlled all the food, that he was the the most powerful man there, and they realized we're in trouble, right? No, they're not in trouble. They would be if if Joseph thought the way they did, but Joseph thinks with a divine viewpoint. So the brothers weren't in any trouble at all. And, and so Joseph testifies to this, that you meant evil against me. And I love this. So in, in um, Genesis 50 and verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? What a great rhetorical question. The answer is no. He says, I'm not God. I'm not judging you. He says, As for me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive so present circumstances have turned out to greater production in this case there's a famine on the way there's going to be seven years of plenty there's going to be seven years of famine and uh, thankfully god put joseph right where he needed to be so he could interpret that dream so he could understand the future so that he could make the application so that he could save his immediate family we tend to think that, oh, He saved Egypt. Oh, He saved the world. He fed much of the, of the ancient Near East during that time of famine. No, that was God being faithful to preserve the Abrahamic covenant, to preserve His promises to the, to the chosen people, to, to make sure that that family survived the famine. And then, of course, Egypt survived and much of the, the ancient Near East also survived because God was providing for His children. Anyway, it may come as a surprise to us when we realize after the fact, oh, that's what God was doing all along. I didn't realize. And uh, praise be to God. Same thing in Esther. Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. And it might seem like a surprise particularly to Haman and all the Persians who thought they were going to be massacring the Jewish people and plundering them and exterminating them. Well, God was uh, so in charge of circumstances that He controlled every flip of the coin, He controlled every casting of the lots, He controlled the date that was selected for the Jewish extermination, and the date was far enough out that uh, God provided for Israel to actually arm themselves and defend themselves. And uh, this too is a the way that circumstances work together for good. So in the twelfth month, the month of Dar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary. (laughs) What a phrase. It was turned to the contrary. So that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. And there's a principle there as well in, in uh, the outworking of God's plan when He does flip the uh, flip the results. How about First Thessalonians two two? First Thessalonians two two. Here's another shocking change of uh, expectations because you might tend to think one thing, and instead you got the absolute opposite that turn, that happens. First Thessalonians two two. Verse 1 says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know. All right, and you you know the background for this? With the Philippian jailer, Acts chapter sixteen. They were traveling on that second missionary journey, and they were beaten, they were arrested, they spent the night in jail. As we know that's Acts chapter sixteen. And then from Acts sixteen to Acts 17, they travel from Philippi to Thessalonica. So he's reviewing that history from the book of Acts. He's reviewing that with those people who were there to the Thessalonians when they arrived in, uh, in Thessalonica. So after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And here too is that surprise twist that's the opposite of what human viewpoint might expect. In human viewpoint, you might expect, well, we had a rough time of it in Philippi, so we, we decided we, we would ease off a little bit. We would, we would be more circumspect. We, wouldn't, we don't want to rock the boat. We're going to be more careful now in Thessalonica not to upset uh, the city authorities. We're going to, we're going to be more low-key and try to keep it hush-hush. That's not what he says. He says, after we were mistreated and beaten in Philippi, we were emboldened. And so it was just the opposite of what human viewpoint might expect. And I appreciate uh, the fact that ministry often turns out this way in, uh, in different ways. And so this was really the introduction to the paragraph and much of what follows then comes from this. He goes on to say in verse 13 that it was the progress in the gospel which caused his imprisonment to become well known. And when you read the verse, Philippians 1.13, when you read the verse, it, it comes out almost backwards from what we expect. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. So that. Purpose clause or results, actually, the results from verse 12. Because he's had this boldness, because the imprisonment brought about a greater progress of the gospel. The progress in the gospel is what caused Paul's imprisonment to become well-known. That's key. Not the other way around. It's not Paul's um, imprisonment caused his progress in the gospel to be well-known. It was the progress in the gospel that caused his imprisonment to be well-known. That's the order, see. And I think sometimes we lose that, particularly if we... uh, if we, uh, you know, in, in a human way of thinking, we have ideas about well, what's going to make a be- a better splash, right? We we start to think about what um, what is it? Is it celebrity that will bring about results? Well, wait a minute. What caused the celebrity? What caused for this to be well known? And uh, and, and so what's the uh, what's the impact on that? Was was Billy Sunday an effective evangelist because he was well known as a baseball player? And do we get that idea in mind that we think, oh, this guy was such a well-known baseball player. No wonder he became a famous evangelist. Or was he really kind of a forgettable baseball player that after he became a famous evangelist, then people went, oh, you know what? He also played baseball before he he, uh, started serving the Lord. See, which order is it? And I, I don't know. I think now, 90 years after the fact, we can probably make a case both directions on it I'd be curious to uh to talk to some of his contemporaries to find out I think he was a big deal in in the baseball world and, and given the money that Chicago was throwing at him, he was a big deal in the baseball world and then becoming an evangelist, he then parlayed the celebrity into one thing from one thing into another but that's not what happens here it It was the fact that progress was being made that caused his imprisonment to be well, uh, well known not the other way around. It was not his well-known imprisonment which caused progress in the gospel. So we talk about some of these things, uh, chains becoming manifest, phaneros. It's, it's even fun to think about manifestations. They're things that that come to our attention. They've been planned by God from eternity past, but here and now we finally see something that appears, right? Like the what to my wondering eye should appear. I just, boom, here it is. This is what uh, God is doing. When God causes something to appear, that apparent thing leaves us without excuse. And boy, that's a fact. When God makes something known to you, when God reveals something to you, when God spotlights something, He's got a reason for spotlighting that. You better pay attention. <laughs> Say, okay, Lord, you got my attention here. This is what I'm supposed to see. Because we're accountable. To whom much is given shall much be required. That slide right there took us two or three classes. I won't be spending nearly the the time on that here this morning. But we are without excuse. The things, uh, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So if He's he's revealed it, if He's spotlighting it, if He's showing you something that He's working in your life, pay attention. Become a, a fellow worker in that. Cooperate with the plan of God as it unfolds in your life. A couple of other items here in verse 13. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. The Praetorian Guard reference here in, uh, in this verse, along with the reference to Caesar's household in chapter 4, has caused a lot of people to assume that the uh, prison epistles must have been written from Rome, and that is an assumption that is not founded, that is an unfounded assumption. It is not necessary for this letter or any of the prison epistles to originate from Rome. Uh, the reference to Caesar's household could have been in any imperial facility in any of the uh, the, the capital regions uh, throughout Rome, Ephesus being a capital of, the, of, of Asia Minor. And so there was a praetorium in Ephesus. Caesar's household was in Ephesus. There would be a, a body of his slaves in Ephesus administering the imperial interests there. So the praetorian guard can reference any imperial guard, such as Jerusalem. When Jesus was on trial... They took him into the praetorium and uh, those religious Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, when they wanted, they wouldn't cross that boundary. They said, oh, we can't go across that boundary because, uh, you know, it's Passover and we're we're very holy, observant Jewish people, even though we're plotting murder at the moment. We're very holy and we're very religious and we don't want to go into the praetorium to uh, continue our murderous plot. And so, uh, (laughs) Pontius Pilate actually had to come out to them, say, Well, there was the the term, the use of the term praetorium was used there in Matthew 27 or Mark 15 or uh, John 18 and 19. There was also a praetorium in Caesarea, that you can read about in Acts twenty three thirty five. There was a praetorium in Ephesus. You can't prove that from the Bible, but we can prove that from history. We know that there was a praetorium in Ephesus. Obviously, there was a praetorium in Rome. No one doubts that, but you can't prove that from the Bible. all right? Because you don't have a reference to a praetorium in Rome other than these ones that are assumed to be in Rome in the, uh, the prison epistles. All right. So that's significant. And we dealt with this in the introduction. I do believe that Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians, and Philemon, the, the prison correspondence, was written from Ephesus during the second missionary journey, not or the third missionary journey, not after the Acts 28 Roman imprisonment. That's the traditional dating. That after Acts 28, uh, while he was in prison in Rome for two years, that's when he wrote the prison epistles. And I think that's too late, and I think the distances are too far for... Uh, sending uh, Philippians to Philippi. All right. Now, the bulk of where we'll spend our time this morning, I think here in verse 3, although there's a 4, 5, and 6 as well. Paul's progress in the gospel and his well-known imprisonment produced goads to action among two widely divergent groups of believers. And they're described here in verses 14 through 17. His progress in the gospel and his well-known imprisonment produced goads to action among two widely divergent groups of believers. So Paul's going through his testing, his testing, his imprisonment. The ministry's taking off like gangbusters. And that becomes a goad. It's a sharp stick that pokes the oxen in the the rump to, to accelerate your ox cart, right? That's a goad. And we all need goads. Every one of us needs a sharp stick for that, that jab in the hindquarters so that we get with the program in the, in the Christian walk. And that goad to action was Paul's imprisonment, the progress in the gospel. And it sparked, really it sparked the same reaction, but for different reasons among these two groups. Remember this? So he says, uh, most of the brethren, this is good, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. That's on the good side. And that was the bulk of the church. That was the bulk of the saints there in his location. So most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. I love that. Watching a brother go through testing should increase your faith. It should be a goad to increase, as it says, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. And then it should produce a boldness. Have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And this too is a a wonderful testimony, I think, to the ministry of the word of God, to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to the, the walk by faith that we have in the Lord. So that's on the one side. But then, he does point out that some of them have some pretty bad motives. He says, uh, some to be sure, this is verse 15, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Now, that's not good. <laughs> envy and strife, that's bad motivation. If it's envy and strife that's driving you, that's that's terrible. If, uh, if you're a pastor just dedicated to... Um, ratcheting up the sermon count because you're envious of Colonel Theme or you're envious of some other pastor and they've got 10,000 sermons on the website, you think, ooh, I've got to beat that number. If it's all about beating a number out of envy, that's the wrong motivation. Okay? I don't know who would do that. All right. <laughs> but you know, he was 32 when he became pastor at Baraka. Ministered for 50 years. He does have 10000 to his credit. It just is what it is. All right. That's not the motivation, though. It's not envy and strife. Besides, the trumpet's going to sound, and we're all going to be out of here too soon anyway. There's no way I'm going to get 50 years of the ministry. But rapture pending, (laughs) I was younger than 32 when I started. All right. Some from envy and strife. And that's not good. Paul's going to celebrate it anyway, but it's not good. Others, the latter, do it out of love. I'm sorry, I missed the last part of verse 15. So some even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. And that's the positive side. That's what we want to foster. That's what we want to produce, the goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. So that's the right motivation. The love for Jesus Christ, the goodwill to, uh, to engage in, in fruitfulness, to engage in ministry. This was a crowd that said, wow, you know, Paul's in prison. We've got to step it up. We have work that we could be doing right now. And they did it out of love and they did it out of goodwill. And it was very positive that uh, for the right reasons, they were naming the name of Christ and they were continuing the gospel ministry. That first crowd, though, out of envy and and strife, um, not so much. Okay, the former, we're told in verse 17, this is the envy and strife crowd, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. How twisted do you got to be where you think that you're preaching the gospel is going to cause Paul stress. That Paul's going to be bent out of shape. That Paul's going to be sitting there in jail just, you know, frittering away and and worried about what you're doing out there preaching the gospel. Okay? Paul is not in his jail cell thinking, "Oh my goodness. Those guys are preaching the gospel and they're they're gathering followers to themselves and they're building reputations for themselves and they're, they're doing all these things and, and I, can't, I can't be a part of that. I can't stop that. I'm, I'm losing ground here. Paul's not in jail thinking any of that. Paul's celebrating. Even the crowd with the wrong motivation he's celebrating because in a, in a way of looking at it, you know, hey at least the name of Christ is being preached. One way or the other they're naming the name of Christ. And so this was the conflict here. For most of the brethren, Paul's chains manifestly in Christ were persuasively emboldening. Persuasively emboldening. What does it take to persuade you? God knows how to persuade. This goes back to what we saw on Wednesday with patho, with persuasion. This is the persuasion that God knows how to do. God's very good at persuading. He's, uh, he's qualified and well-rehearsed, right? He knows how to persuade, and he knows what it is that will persuade. He knows what will persuade repentance. He knows what will persuade positive volition. He knows how to persuade. For, the, for these guys, it was putting Paul in jail. That'll light a fire into these other guys. How great is that? Is it worth it then? Is it worth it for Paul to go to jail for a bit? Well, if it persuades these other guys and the work gets multiplied, of course, persuasively emboldening by Christ. Some fun use here. There's patho and tolmao. Tolmao, the Greek word there for embolden. Almost to the point of an audacity. And I like that. We spent probably two classes on this slide right here. The audacity of being emboldened. The audacity of daring. See, daring is a good thing. When you dare, right? Think of how sad it is when you don't dare and God has called you to something and then you just, uh, I don't think I can do that. Or, oh, I'm not worthy. Or, oh, you know, when you were supposed to dare, he, has, he laid that before you as an open door. Daring is a good thing when you're walking by faith and you have the audacity to obey the Lord. But if you're prideful about it, if you're carnal, then you've crossed a line and then your daring becomes out of place. Then your daring is actually... Um, unbiblical. And we have the idiom, how dare you, right? How dare you? And It's, just, it's the same word, dare in English or tomao in Greek. It's the same words, the same idea that if you are audacious in the will of God, that can be spectacular. <laughs> that can be spectacular. You can, you can be Gideon and go grab 300 men and that's audacious in the plan of God. You could be David standing before Goliath. That's audacious in the plan of God. And so we want to be. Let's let's look at some of these. I think these are useful. Um, because we've got good examples of this. We've got um, Moses is my favorite example of this. Um, but let's take a look at some of these. Matthew 22, you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew twenty two forty six. 46. And there's a blend in this, on this slide. So some of these are negative examples. Some of these are positive examples. You kind of get a sense for both sides. Matthew twenty two forty six. Of course, there's a lot of back and forth in this chapter. The Pharisees are, are attacking him, trying to trap him with their questions. They're not as clever as they think they are. <laughs> okay. And so, um, so then Jesus throws it back at them. And while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He said, all right, you got all these questions for me. i got a question for you. How about that? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So they said, him, the son of David. Again, they're not as clever as I think they are. They're correct, but he wants to take it a step beyond and say, well, then what do you do with this passage? So then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? If he's the son of David, why is David calling him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, wow, there's two lords there, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And really, this is the the crux of so much. Psalm 110, this is, this is, how many times has the book of Hebrews addressed Psalm 110? With sit at my right hand, or you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is a big messianic deal, and Jesus is locked in on it. And when he throws it to the Pharisees, they can't touch it because they know he's right, that David called him Lord. He is son and Lord because, of course, he is God and preceded David, preceded all of us. So then the consequence of this then is that no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare, talma'u, Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. All right? And that's kind of shut down that line of attack (laughs) right there. They didn't dare. They didn't dare ask him another question. They realized that was getting them nowhere. In fact, it was making matters worse because he was proving himself to be the Messiah every time they tried. So they wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare. That's the idea. The idea of daring, what is it that we dare to do? What is it that we don't dare to do? And, and if we put it in those terms, if God's calling you to ministry, if God's calling you to the mission field, and, and there's a carnal part of you that wouldn't dare, really? Oh, I wouldn't dare do that. Why? And yet you would dare defy the sovereignty of God? You would dare defy His work assignment for your life? You're going to defy Him? How dare you? Okay? So I think a lot of times when we carnally don't dare certain things, there's a bigger picture that we need to recognize. Wait a minute. Here's who I really should be in fear of. All right, so Matthew 22 has a parallel in Mark 12. We don't have to look at that one. How about Luke 20 and verse 40? And um, different audience, this, these are now the scribes, but similar outcome. Um, and <laughs> this one makes me laugh every time. What a great passage to get to on a weekend like this. Where I just finished doing a wedding last night. So they come up with this story. They talk about this woman who was married seven times and, uh, and of course if the man dies without a child then the brother is supposed to take his widows uh, you know, and have a child with that woman so that the name is carried forward called Leveret Marriage. And so the Sadducees they invent this, this theory that there could be a woman that goes through seven brothers like this. So a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless. His brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. That was under Mosaic Law. That was part of what they had to do. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her. In the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. What a ridiculous story. (laughs) You know? That's not seven brides for seven brothers, that's one bride for seven unfortunate brothers. Anyway, finally, the woman also died. And, And they're so clever. They think this is this is supporting their argument because the the Sadducees were on the side of thinking that there is no resurrection, there is no uh, so in the resurrection they think, well, you know which one's going to be her husband because she's had seven of them All right, well, Jesus said to them, "The sons of this age marry and are given a marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, and the resurrection from the dead, in other words, alluding to the fact that these guys aren't even saved." Uh, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Understand that? They cannot die anymore. Jesus says that's a reason for uh, not getting married. Marriage is till death us do part. So if you can't die, uh, you're not suited for marriage. Anyway, that's another issue. Um, But are like the angels. We don't turn into angels. We are like the angels and uh, are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. Understand that's a huge point. He is the God of Abraham. Not that he was the God of Abraham, or he back in the day when Abraham was around. He was the God of Abraham. He used to be the God of Abraham. No, he is the God of Abraham because Abraham still lives. Isaac still lives. Jacob still lives. He's the God of the living. That's where an is is significant. What does is mean? Is, not was, is. And so some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have the courage to question him They didn't dare question him any longer about anything. So now he's he's shut up the Pharisees, he's shut up the Sadducees, got them all where they don't dare. Mark 15, 43. After he's crucified, it was time to take the body down, get him off before sundown, It's the preparation day before the Sabbath. Joseph Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He gathered up courage. He gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You talk about a dare, (laughs) the audacity. You know, Pilate just put him to death. And you're going to go to him and say, uh, I'm one of his. You know, can I have his body? Can I take his body down? Can I bury it? And uh, and so there you go, audacity. John twenty one twelve. More audacity. After the crucifixion, uh, Peter and seven of the disciples went fishing, and Jesus uh, meets them that morning and prepares breakfast for him. He said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Interesting, these different uh, things. Acts 5. Acts 5. Verse 12 says, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high regard. And so again, are they going to associate or are they going to dare to associate? Because if they're seen with them, then they get identified with them. And that's part of what we're going to see in Hebrews where the the recipients of that epistle, uh, they had endured a great conflict of suffering. They had had their property uh, confiscated. They had suffered by naming the name of Christ. Aspects there. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. In other words, Old Testament believers were saying, we're crossing into the church. He is the Messiah. He is the risen Savior. And so they're going from an Old Testament salvation to a New Testament salvation status, receiving the Holy Spirit, being added to the body of Christ. Acts 7 Acts 7.32 Here again is the I am statement. The is I am the God of Abraham of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so Moses shook with fear and would not venture or dare, would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, "Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground." We were discussing this at prayer meeting this morning. The sense of fear or reverence that uh, is largely lost in uh, contemporary uh, christianity a couple more romans 5 7 and i don't know that we need to see all of these but um i really want to spend time with moses romans 5 7 here's a dare this came up uh in a question and answer night a couple weeks back one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. The idea of daring, that's built into that verb there. The verb is talma'o. I guess the last one here would be Romans fifteen eighteen. It's a presumption. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Recognize this. If you boast, you better be boasting in the Lord. And if you're boasting in yourself, how dare you? He said, I would not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So to God be the glory. It's great things He has done. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I do what I do. And any discussion apart from that, any discussion that's, uh, that says uh, something I did, woe, woe be unto me. God said He would not give His glory to another. And here I go trying to take it for myself now. Boast in the Lord. Otherwise, how dare you? Don't presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. All right, you can look up the rest of those uh, in First Corinthians 6.1. That's a good one. You're going to court with uh, taking your brother to court against it. You know how dare you? How dare you take your brother to court? You should handle that within the local church. Handle that. Find a man of wisdom and deal with it in the flock. Don't go dragging him before a secular court. Stand before unbelievers for judgment. Second Corinthians ten verse two and verse twelve. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one. Of course, our passage this morning. Philippians one fourteen. Uh, a very famous episode in Jude 9 when Michael would not rail against Satan, wouldn't presume to rail against Satan, but just said, the Lord rebuke you. You know, Michael doesn't stick out his chest and say, I'm the archangel Michael, you don't know who you're messing with. No, he wouldn't dare. Likewise, those false teachers, they, they don't hesitate to, to you know, they, they dare to revile against angelic majesties themselves. In an interesting way actually moses is our greatest illustration the greatest illustration of this concept comes from moses there's a certain sanctified audacity that we get as we grow in the lord as we become uh, intimate with him with his plan as we recognize that uh, certain things that he puts us through are actually tests of our faith and we know better or we should know better and i think this is interesting too so let's look at exodus these great stories should be well known to us, and uh, they serve to illustrate the principles of doctrine that we're gleaning in, uh, in the epistles when you think of daring and obedience. So uh, we've got the chapter uh, 3 here with the burning bush, and uh, the Lord is commissioning Moses. Come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go out to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? And so here's Moses with the wrong kind of daring. He won't dare go to Pharaoh, but he dares to argue with the creator God of the universe. How's that? You know, does that make any sense? You're afraid of Pharaoh, but you're not afraid to argue with God. (laughs) And this whole who am I? So I think the first thing to answer any of our issues, if we find that we need some kind of a principle, some kind of a reminder to, uh, to go ahead and dare, you want to dare to obey God? Just remind yourself, who am I? You're nobody, but who's God? God's the one that's working in and through you, both to will and do of His good pleasure. So to, you know, just answer your own who am I question with, I'm a nobody, and then just go forth and dare to do what it is God wants to do with a nobody like you. All right, It's a great thing. Chapter 4. Moses said, in verse 1, Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Well, what if? What if? you got all these fears and all these, well, what if? What if? Wait a minute. Don't worry about that. God's got a plan for that. He's got a plan for that and He has it all worked out from the foundation of the world. He's just called you to be obedient. You're trying to work out all these what ifs. Just walk by faith. Be obedient. Do what God wants you to do. And watch what He does with all those what-ifs. Down to verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been an eloquent. I've never been eloquent. Well, he sure seems to be talking a lot now. (laughs) Three different times he's been arguing with God. Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. Neither recently nor in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or see or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You're asking the wrong questions here, Moses. If you want to dare, dare. Walk by faith. To me, it's interesting. All right, over to chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let his sons, uh, let the sons of Israel go out of his land." But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, "Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech." Really, we're doing this again. Why is it the same test from chapter three to chapter four to chapter five to chapter six? Moses, when are you going to learn? How long does it take? I find this greatly encouraging if you're, if, you know, some some folks just take longer to sink in. That's great. I'm one of those, you know, pound it in, pound it in, pound it in, I'll figure it out the third time, the fourth time, sometime we'll figure it out. But what's interesting to me is, is it reaches a point after the exodus, after they're in the wilderness, it reaches a point when um, Moses has now developed such an intimacy with God, such a uh, familiarity with the plan of God, they reach a point when God tells Moses, uh, in a test, God tells Moses, now step back, I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses, you know what Moses does? Okay? He argues with God. But And maybe for the first time ever, he's arguing with God in the right way. <laughs> okay? He's not arguing with God with, oh, I can't do this, or oh, send Aaron, or oh, you know... He's actually arguing with a doctrinal premise saying, God, you have made covenant promises. If you destroy these people, the Egyptians will hear of it. The Gentiles will hear of it. They'll say that you brought them, you brought Israel, you could bring them out of Egypt, but you couldn't bring them into the land of promise. Your name would be besmirched. And also God said, well, I'm going to start over with you. Moses says, well, that can't fly. Because he has promises to all 12 tribes and Moses is just one guy from one tribe. So there's no way that God could obliterate the Jewish people and start over with Moses. And Moses knows that. And so he's able to stand before the Lord and argue against what God said he was going to do and become a kinsman redeemer. He can become an intercessor. He can pray on behalf of his kinsmen and say, Lord, spare them. And that happens three different times in which Moses passes the first two and then blows it on the third one. All right? That's why Moses doesn't get to enter into the promised land. All right, so there's, there's a lot there. Daring to speak without fear because of goodwill, out of love, knowing God's appointments from pure motives. The, the way that Philippians 1 is written, it is so um, chopped up. It is so chopped up. There's so much back and forth between uh, the good crowd and the bad crowd that you really have to compile it together into one compilation. Daring to speak without fear because of goodwill. That's Philippians one fifteen. Out of love, knowing God's appointments. That's verse 16. From pure motives. That's verse 17. As you work through those verses, 14, 15, 16, 17, you've got to stitch together all the positive statements for the one side and then you've got to stitch together all the negative statements on the other side. And then, of course, cross-references and other supporting passages. On the negative side, envy and strife, that's verse 15. And then out of selfish ambition, thinking to cause Paul distress, that's verse 17. Remember, envy and strife, that's never God's wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, right? Read that description of God's wisdom in James 3, and then read the opposite. James 3 gives us the demonic side of Satan's wisdom, its earthly, natural, demonic, where you have the envy and strife, where you have the ambition, the inordinate ambition of what's described there. Are you familiar with this? James chapter 3. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior the, uh, in his deeds the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That text there matches perfectly with this crowd Paul's talking about, those that were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Goes on to say, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. When you fall away from the faith, you're paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. That's just no other way to say it. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And that's what this crowd was involved with. And it was terrible. So others were preaching Christ because of envy and strife, out of selfish ambition, thinking to cause Paul distress. What then? (laughs) What then? Right? You ever shake your head and wonder, what am I going to do with these children? Okay. Well, if you're a parent, of course you have. (laughs) Every parent has. And so Paul is doing this now with these church children, with his flock, with the the members of the saints there, he says, what then? What then? I like that question. What then? Well, what's the consequences? What's the application? What now? What are we going to do now? He says only, he says that um, Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being proclaimed. Either way, Christ is proclaimed. and So that's something to rejoice in. Well, they're preaching Christ. So they're doing it with wrong motives. What they're doing, they won't get rewarded for. They're going to see that as wood, hay, stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. And so they just, they're going to watch all of that get burned up. But in the meantime, they're preaching Christ. <laughs> what if folks get saved? Hey, hallelujah. And folks get saved and folks get brought into the body of Christ. So those people with the wrong motivation, they lose all their reward, but still... The body of Christ is being built up, and so there's something to rejoice in. And he says he will, whether in pretense or in truth, whether in pretense or in truth. The proclamation of Christ is cause for rejoicing. And I tried to coin a phrase, never really got far with it. You know, try, how about, we talk about acts of war a cause of war. The Latin, it belli is a, is a cause of war. It's an act of war. That's, that's very well known. I try to, co- to coin one. Problem is, if you coin a Latin phrase, the Latins are all dead, you know? So you try to coin a phrase. Instead of act of war, how about an act of rejoicing? A cause of joy. A gaudy gaudiae It never caught on. So <laughs> anyway, but that's what we should have. We should, we should look at different things and view them as joy triggers, right? Joy triggers. We can look at th- just anything, a circumstance and go, well, praise God. And here's why. It might not be good, but it's going to work together for good. Maybe they got wrong motivations, but you know what? At the end of the day, folks got saved because of that. All right. Now let's work with these new believers and try to get them grounded in truth so they don't turn out like those guys. Right? And make it a cause for joy. Father, I thank you uh, for this review. I know um, we're drinking from a fire hose this morning, Father. We're encapsulating about six or eight classes into one single session this morning. But, Father, it is a review, and I thank you for it. And I pray that uh, for the brothers and sisters that want to get more on each of these issues, Father, the MP3s are sitting there on the website, and uh, anyone who wants to can go through there in all the detail. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this book study. Philippians is so powerful and, and I believe it's, uh, it's working mightily in each one of us and all of us collectively. This lampstand is stronger because you brought us through the book of Philippians the way that you did. So Father, we thank you for all these things we've learned. Might we remember them? Might we make consistent application? Teach us to dare, Father, in an appropriate way. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.